Good evening. Let's pray as we come to God's Word. Father, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I am so unworthy to speak the word of the Lord, and we are all unworthy to hear it. But we thank you that by the blood of Christ we are washed clean and made fit to stand in your presence. Sanctify my tongue and my words tonight for the proclamation of your truth. Sanctify our ears, dear Lord, that we might hear this truth and receive it in humility and thankfulness. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask this. Amen. So we are continuing our study through the book of Malachi. Last week, we heard a great message from Dave Hinckley, who's our children and youth ministry director. I always love hearing Dave preach. I always, when I see him up there, I always think, man, Dave's really going to nail it. And he gave a great sermon last week about how the nation of Israel had been engaging in very half-hearted worship towards the Lord. Uh, They didn't love God with their whole hearts. So this half-hearted worship came out by, uh, it was evidenced by the fact that they were bringing sacrificial animals that were diseased or blemished or blind or lame or sick. They were offering imperfect sacrifices to the Lord. And the priests of Israel had failed because they were allowing uh, the nation of Israel to bring these sacrifices, which they were expressly forbidden to do. So God's temple and his altar had been uh, desecrated by these sacrifices, by these unauthorized sacrifices. So that's the context that we need to bear in mind as we're coming to this passage. This is what we just finished talking about, these sacrifices that were not good. So uh, if you haven't already, please turn in your Bible to Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. That's the first through the ninth verse, the second chapter of the book of Malachi. Follow along as I read. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, And he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. You have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts, and so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. I want to begin by observing the obvious, which is right there in the very first verse of our text, which is that this command is spoken primarily to priests. That's the audience 
that the prophet Malachi is speaking to. It's right there. And now, O priests, this command is for you. However, I do not believe that all of you who are not priests, and myself who's not a priest, can all be excused to just go home and have a night off, and all the priests can stay in here for me, and everyone else can just leave. We're going to learn from our text tonight that priests have commands, and that the people served by those priests ought to understand those commands. In other words, the, the people are not passive in their relationship to spiritual leaders. They don't just sit and receive. They're not just receptacles who walk in the door of the, of the church or God's house, the temple, and they just receive what the priest has to offer, and they just walk right back out the way they came. There, there should be an activity in the mind, in the posture, uh, in the spirit of a churchgoer. And no, I'm not referring to the posture where you sort of lean forward and pray while during the sermon. Not that posture. Uh, there, there should be a heart position of humility to learn and an excitement to hear what might be heard. So this content is very, very important for us to know. So that, that by way of introduction is just my plea to you to listen because this information, this word, it's for you and me, not just priests or pastors. So that being said, we have three points to discuss tonight. Three points of focus that I see here in this text. But before I tell you the points, I just want you to know that I made these points. I I thought of them before I heard Confex's message this morning, which is also about priests. He was preaching about them. His points also all began with a P. We did not plan that. That was not, we didn't get together and huddle up, but it just sort of worked out that way in God's will. So lots of priestly messages today, lots of points that start with the letter P. So... Bearing that in mind, our points are, first, uh, a perverse priesthood, secondly, a pure priesthood, and lastly, the posture of God's people. So let's start with a perverse priesthood. You could also call it a perfidious priesthood, if you like GRE-style words. Perfidious means unfaithful. It's another P word for you. Uh, And as we read through this passage, we see so many ways that the priests of Israel had failed. Verse 2, they did not lay the commands of God to heart. Verse 3, you can see that their offerings are described as dung, so they had offered these offensive offerings to the Lord. Verse 8, they turn aside from God's way. Verse 8, also, they cause many to stumble by their instruction. So not only are they teaching wrongly, but the teaching that they're making is causing the people following them to fall into sin. Verse 9 They do not keep the ways of the Lord. And I think it's implied as well, uh, although not stated directly, that they have just a general manner of life that's wicked and unholy. Returning to verse 8, they have corrupted the covenant of Levi. So I want to think a little bit more about that phrase because the covenant of Levi actually shows up twice in this passage. It seems like an important concept. Uh, We don't have enough time for a whole lecture on what covenants are. Uh, But just real quickly, a covenant in the Bible is an agreement that is freely instituted by God. And there are a few features that usually come with covenants. There are terms or rules, you could call them. There are blessings uh, of what happens if you keep the rules. And then there are curses for if you don't keep the rules. And you can already see in our passage that blessings are mentioned, curses are mentioned, covenants are mentioned. So this is clearly an important concept. 
So an example to help you wrap your mind around this a little bit, if you're unfamiliar with the idea of a covenant, could be maybe a mortgage. Uh, a mortgage is a type of agreement. The terms could include interest rates, how often you ought to make your payments, how long is your mortgage, is it a 15-year or a 30-year? Those would be the terms. The blessings would be the money that the bank gives you to buy the house and maybe other things, like that they let you live there, thankfully, while you pay off the money that you owe. Uh, and then the curse could be foreclosure um, and that they'll wreck your credit score or any number of things that would happen if you renege on the terms of that covenant. So that's just a, it's not exactly a covenant, that's a helpful example to, to think about what a covenant might look like. So we could go back to the Pentateuch and examine this whole Levitical priesthood covenant going on, but for our purposes tonight, we just want to look at what, what's going on in this passage. What is Malachi saying here about the covenant, the blessings, the curses, the terms. So if you look closely, you can see, I think, in verse 5, in the second half, uh, he describes the covenant as a covenant of fear. He says, it was a covenant of fear, this covenant of Levi, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. I think there were many things that were expected of these Levitical priests, but this seems to be the foundation for those terms, that they would fear God and they would stand in awe of his name. This is a very helpful verse, I find, because the fear of God can be a hard, um, hard concept to understand, and he just defines it for us very helpfully there. To fear God means to stand in awe of his name. So that, I would say, is sort of the foundational term of the covenant of Levi, that these priests would fear God, stand in awe of his name. Uh, the blessings, I think if you look, just jump a little earlier in verse 5, some of the blessings could include life and peace. And it says very clearly that God gave those blessings to Levi. So Levi feared God, he kept that term, and God gave him the blessings of the covenant, which were life and peace. Now, what are the curses of this covenant? Well, there are a few, I think, that are mentioned here. Verse 2 says, I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings, because you do not lay it to heart. Verse 3 says, I will rebuke your offspring, and spread dung on your faces. And verse 9, later it says, I make you despised and abased before all the people. So that's a little overview of the covenant as I see it in these verses. Now, it's clear here that God is very angry with these priests. They've, they've broken this covenant. They've, they've defamed it. Uh, and this, this covenant was the agreement that he had made with their ancestors about how. How are they supposed to serve him? I think, again, the foundation is the fear of the Lord, but there were stipulations to that covenant. Um, one of them being, for instance, what Dave talked about last week, the way that sacrifices were to be offered. These priests had transgressed that covenant, and they had turned their backs on the agreement that God had made with them. So this is as if um, as another example could be the, that the president... Imagine that the president takes office, takes his, his vow, he gets sworn in on inauguration day, and pretty soon afterwards just stops doing everything that a president does. He stops governing the armed forces, he stops uh, meeting with foreign heads of state, he stops working with Congress, stops doing all the things that presidents are supposed to do. And I think included in that would be maybe doing things that presidents shouldn't do, maybe like having a Twitter account. So, and this is important to realize, 
this isn't just tradition. This isn't just, oh, this is always what priests have done. This is not just, oh, presidents, this is what presidents should do. This is the law of the land. For a president, we have a document called the Constitution. It lays out very specifically what the president is required to do. And if the president doesn't abide by those terms, he's failed. He has been a bad president. He's unworthy of his post, and he ought to be removed. And these priests were in a similar situation. They had been entrusted with a special job, a calling that God had given them. They they were supposed to perform it in a certain manner. They ignored that calling. They treated it with contempt. Worst of all, this wasn't just some human diet. It wasn't just some constitution that humans had made. This was the word of God that they had ignored, and they disrespected it. God says to them, you have not taken my commands to heart. You have not laid them to heart. So these ignoble priests, they'd, they'd been given everything they needed, all the instruction that was required to obey God fully. The rules were there very clearly for them to see. And they paid it no mind. They just didn't think about it. They didn't pay it attention. And I think, if you're like me, that you tend to do this sometimes as well. Perhaps you wake up every morning and think, I should probably start the day with some devotions. Maybe read the word of God. But first, breakfast. And so throughout the day, God's word is pushed to the back burner and relegated to the realm of things that don't matter quite enough to warrant my full attention right now. Uh, So one example that strikes close to my heart is husbands. Maybe you've been in this situation. You probably have if you've been married for longer than a couple months. Your wife is sitting close to you in the foreground here and talking to you about something very important In the background, there's something else going on, like probably a sports game. This happened to me yesterday. And your wife is telling you things you need to know about groceries and things. And there in the background, there's this sports game going on, and she can definitely see where you're looking over here. And what's happening in this moment is, you know, she probably crosses her arms and stops talking to you. And you're like, oh, crap, I should have probably been listening. But what happens there is that your wife realizes that you're disrespecting her and what you're saying to her with your actions is, your words don't matter to me. What you're saying right now is not worthy of my attention. I don't really care that much what you're saying to me. And this is what we do with God's word. And we're very foolish. We're very foolish to think that it's a small thing to neglect God's word and treat it lightly. It's not a small thing. And these priests were learning that message. But not only did they disobey God for themselves, but this is an important thing to to mention because these are priests. They're not just humans. They have a special job. Again, not only did they disobey and go astray themselves, they led others with them. You can see that clearly in verse 8. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. This is interesting because it seems like what Malachi is saying is you're causing people to stumble by instruction. In other words, you're teaching them to sin. And I think the priest might take issue with that and say, excuse me, no, I'm not teaching them to sin. I just messed up a little bit. But what the priest needed to realize is that when they were making these 
unacceptable offerings, they were teaching something about God. The way that they lived their lives, the way that they carried out their office of priesthood was teaching incorrect things, and it was actually instructing the people of Israel in a false way. So they led them astray. And this is why the New Testament warns that not many people should try to be teachers. To to teach the gospel is a very good thing. It's a very good thing, but it is a weighty thing. It's a sobering thing. It takes courage to climb up into the pulpit. There are many butterflies going on in my stomach now and earlier, and I commend to you, there are men who do this every week. Jason Holopoulos has been preaching for us faithfully. It's a weighty thing to do what he does, to speak on behalf of God. And everyone who does this, everyone who teaches, needs to know that they will be held accountable for the people that they teach. If you teach something wrong and someone does something wrong, that's on you. That's your fault. You have taught them incorrectly. You've caused them to stumble by your instruction. So to help illustrate how important this is, I have a quote from John Piper's book, God is the Gospel, and he's describing why is doctrine or theology important for the gospel? He says, doctrine is the description of the treasures of the gospel. Doctrine describes their true value and why they are so valuable. Doctrine guards the diamonds of the gospel from being discarded as mere crystals. So that's what doctrine is. Here's the important part. And all the while, doctrine does this with its head bowed in wonder that it should be allowed to touch the things of God. It whispers praise and thanks as it deals with the diamonds of the king. Its fingers tremble at the cost of what it handles. Prayers ascend for help, lest any stone be minimized or misplaced. And again, I want to probe here and ask, do we think this way? Do we approach God's word with this sort of reverence? Do we lead Bible studies or, or family worship or, or try to speak of the gospel to our coworkers with, with a slight tremor in our souls and a prayer to the sovereign God of heaven that he will guide our lips so that we will not mishandle the word of truth? I've been guilty of this. I've treated the, God, the word of God far too lightly, and I think we all have. God's truth is a precious gift and it can be a dangerous topic of conversation. It's not fragile, like a, gra- uh, like a glass ornament that may shatter if touched the wrong way. It's more like a weapon, like a sharp two-edged sword that may be wielded with great efficacy, but may also cause much destruction if used unwisely. So how does God respond? Again, how, what, what is this curse that we're talking about that God brings in response to the defamation of his covenant. First, I want you to notice, before we rush on to the fire and brimstone, I want you to notice in verse 2 that there's an implicit patience of God that's going on here. He gives them another chance. Verse 2, if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, do you hear the, the compassionate pleading of the Lord? He's asking his people whom he loves Don't go that way. Please listen. Why will you die, O Israel? Again, implicit here is the the fact if they will listen and turn from their wicked ways, God will relent. 
However, there's not a lot of hope really in this passage. As we continue reading, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. They have a track record of ignoring God. So, God is patient, but he also has a word for relentlessly disobedient priests. So what can they expect? They can expect to be dishonored and shamed and sent away. You can see this, verse 9, I make you despised and abased before all the people. There, there will be public shame that will come upon them for the way that they have failed in their calling. Verse 3, I will spread dung on your faces and you shall be taken away with it. They'll be removed from the office that they have been called to fulfill. So we need to talk about this spreading dung thing because that's definitely the phrase that stood out to you when you were listening through uh, to, to the reading at the beginning. It's a very intense phrase to use. Why? Why is he talking about this? Well, I think that there's a reciprocity that God is trying to bring out here. And I noticed that in a few different places. Number one, these priests refuse to give honor to the name of God. And so he is saying, well, then I will dishonor you. Uh, it says at the bottom, the word, this little word, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways. Inasmuch, what that signals to me is that God always punishes people appropriately and proportionately. He never flies off the handle and gives a, a, a punishment for sin that is way too harsh. And he never punishes sin too lightly. He is the holy, perfect, just God of all the universe, and his punishment always is right. But then why dung? Well, let's read verse 3. I will spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings. So this is, if you will, God saying... When you bring an offering before me, not just an offering that clearly is problematic. If you bring a sheep that is blind or it's blemished in some way uh, into, my, into my house to bring us a sacrifice, not only is that offering clearly defective in some way, but it, it, it's, it flies in the face of what God had commanded. God had said, you need to bring a certain type of offering. You need to bring a pure lamb. You need to bring... Uh, a heifer or a bull of some kind that is unblemished. And so they were, they, were, they were just bringing whatever they happened to have. They were bringing this crap is what it was. And so God is saying, okay, if what you're going to do is come into the temple, a holy place, which is a place for God to meet with his people, and you're going to pile these offerings onto the altar like so much dung here, these offerings that are unacceptable, and I've told you very clearly that they're unacceptable to me, I'm going to return the offense of that gesture onto you. You say, God, here is this. And he says, take it back. I don't want it. This is what this is like to me. When you do this, when you bring this offering that's offensive, this is how it feels, like spreading dung on your face. Not a pretty picture not something that anyone would want to have happen to them, I would guess. And God's saying, that's what you're doing, and that's what I will do to you, because God is fair. So, this is the severe warning that God sent to the unfaithful priests in Israel. We need to remember, God is abundant in compassion and mercy. It's true, and we see that here, that he gives them a chance to repent 
But God may be merciful, but he will not be made a fool of. He is not the type of God you can ignore with impunity. If we insist on going our own way in full opposition to what God has clearly said and told us, nothing remains for us but the just punishment of a holy God. Fortunately, fortunately, not all priests were as bad as this. Some of them were good. So let us turn to consider the second point, a pure priesthood. What, do a, what does a good priest look like? Malachi is very helpful. He doesn't just say oh, everything's bad. He helps us and gives us sort of a resume, or not a resume, I guess, a want ad for a priest, what a good priest would look like. What would a faithful priest seem to be? First, he points us to Levi as the archetype of a good and upright priest. Verse 5b and 6, remember it says that Levi feared God. He stood in awe of his name. Verse 6, true instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many from iniquity. That's the profile of Levi. And you need to remember just historically that Levi wasn't actually a priest, right? He, he was one of the sons of Jacob who went to Egypt. Levi is sort of a a term that is being used here to describe the Levitical priests who came from Levi. They were descended from him. So just bear that in mind. Levi wasn't ever actually a priest. Um, But then Malachi moves on. He describes Levi for us. And he moves on as if to say, okay, based on that foundation of Levi, here is how a priest ought to be. Verse 7. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So what do we learn about a priest from this passage? Well, we learn that a priest speaks rightly. True instruction was in his mouth. The lips of a priest should guard knowledge. Do you notice how often Malachi refers to mouths and lips in this verse? Four times, mouth or lips. True instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was found on his lips. Verse 7, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth. Why? Why does he have this fixation on Mouths and lips. Well, I think what he's pointing out is that the ministry of a priest is a speaking ministry. He does his work through words. This is why it's important to be careful with the word of God. It's how God communicates, and this is how the priest fulfilled his office, was through words. So it's of great importance that he would guard his lips and speak only what is true about God. We saw earlier the negative example that we saw a a priest who dishonored God's word, didn't treat it with respect, didn't think that it was of any great account. Here we see the positive example. A good priest will speak the truth of God. His lips are likened to guardians that are, are watching the way to knowledge and are keeping it safe from intruders. Unlike these sinful priests of Israel who mistreated God's covenant, a good priest is the defender truth, a bastion of wisdom and discernment. So that's one thing. A priest speaks rightly. Secondly, he lives rightly. These priests feared God. He stood in awe of my name. No wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. The priest of God is called not merely to walk the walk, but to talk the talk. Which is I, or, sorry, backwards. Talk the talk, but to walk the walk. Uh, woeful and irreparable damage can be done when the chief of hypocrites is the man at the front of the church who teaches others to, to practice what he refuses to do himself. 
you can do a lot of damage that way. And that's what a good priest shies away from. Levi was a good priest because he not only taught the people what God required of them, he was also obedient to those commands himself. He was an example that they could look to and say, ah, this is what a godly person looks like. This is what it looks like to walk in God's ways. So he's a good example, and he shows the people what it means to be obedient to the commands that he teaches. Number three thing that marks a good priest, he shepherds others. People should seek instruction from his mouth, and it also says that he turned many from iniquity. Uh, The heart of a priest, it's not one that's going to, a good priest will not show up, just sort of dispense with his duties and just be on his way. His heart wants to see the people that he's teaching walk in the light of life. He longs for his flock to seek instruction from him. He yearns to lead them in the path of righteousness. It's not sufficient for him to just preach that many should turn from iniquity. He wants to see it happen. He wants to help people make it happen. His passion is to lead people in leaving their sin behind and seeking the Lord. Finally, fourthly, the pure priest derives his authority from God. Look at verse 2. The first phrase, if you will not listen. The foundational sin of the priest, the reason God was cursing them, is that they wouldn't just listen to God. Priests don't just speak for God. They have to listen to him first. That's what a messenger does. Verse 7, we see the priest is the messenger, the Lord of hosts. Messengers don't make up the messages they carry, usually. When your mail person brings you mail, it's highly unlikely that the letter they leave in your mailbox is a letter that they have written themselves. Maybe, if you're very close with your mail person, they might do that. But that's probably not what they do. What they do, their function is to faithfully deliver the words of one person to you. That's what they do. That's their job. And the priest that God is looking for, that he commends, is not one who's going to become puffed up and conceited and think that the truth or the power of his teaching is his own truth. It's his own strength. He knows. He knows that he's just a mouthpiece. He is a tool that God uses to communicate with his people. And I want you to know that that that's no indignity to describe the priest that way. It's just applying a Godward perspective to his office. We all deceive ourselves if we think that God has any ultimate need of us. He is in the heavens. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. To God belongs power and steadfast love. If he wants to do something, nothing in heaven or on earth is going to be able to prevent him from doing that. So we ought to recognize, and the godly priest does recognize, His role, our role, it's not to gather glory for ourselves or say, look what I've done for God. Look what I can do. It's merely to be obedient to what God has said, to point people back to him, to redirect the eyes of the people to the God of abiding power and mercy. The God who sits enthroned above with seraphim and yet deigns to stoop down from his lofty position to speak to us through his word and through the human instruments that he's appointed. So good priests are ones who speak the word of God carefully and truthfully, who live lives that honor and glorify the one whom they serve, who seek to lovingly pastor and shepherd the people under their care, 
and who know deeply that the strength for their ministry and the word that they preach and the basis of their office is founded on God's authority and not their own. That would be what a pure priest looks like. So how are we, we are not priests again, but how are we to interact with the teaching of a priest or a pastor as we generally call them nowadays? The posture of God's people is our third point. As I mentioned at the beginning, there's a certain position that we ought to adopt during the the teaching of a priest. There's a humility, certainly, and a teachable spirit. But one that stands out to me in this passage specifically is eagerness. Verse 7 says, people should seek instruction from the mouth of their priest. So these people, the nation of Israel, and we can apply this to us, they were to arrive at the temple with an anticipatory mindset, seeking instruction, wanting, leaning forward to catch every word from the lips of their priest. He was there to instruct them. They were there to be instructed. And just as the priest was to, he was to view his duty not with a dry and ho-hum sort of attitude, but with reverence and joy, they too were called to receive that teaching with glad and thankful hearts, with a sense of the graciousness of God in speaking to them, and happiness, happiness at just how good it is to be taught by God. It's a good thing. This is what we're called to. How often do we thirst after knowledge of the Lord? I know that my passion for it often dries up just as quickly as it sprouts. If the word of God is the bread by which we live. Remember when Jesus quotes Deuteronomy? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every mouth that comes from the word of God. If the word of God is our bread, our daily bread, and each Sunday morning is a family feast, do we arrive with our mouths watering? Are we hungry when we come in the door for God's truth? Or is our appetite dulled because we've filled our stomachs already with lesser delicacies. So that's our posture. But I think, in continuation on this point, that we should actually call this the posture of a priestly people, not just because it gets another P word in there, but also because, did you know that you, Christian, are a priest as well? The Bible speaks of us as priests. We're not Levites, but in Christ we have been made the priests of God. Revelation 5, 9 through 10, you, Jesus, were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. Earlier in Revelation 1, 5 through 6, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. 1 Peter 2. Verse 5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Later in that passage, down in verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have been made priests of the new covenant. 
So these commands here are for us to teach the word of God, to turn others away from iniquity and toward the Lord, to avoid defaming his covenant, to walk in peace and uprightness. And yes, this is a different emphasis. We're not all pastors, but there is a very true way in which we can fulfill these commands of teaching and walking in peace and uprightness and obeying the word of the Lord. So with that in mind, here are some questions. You might want to just jot these down and think through these later. Maybe journal about them. Think about them. Do my words, and not just my vocabulary, but even the things I choose to talk about, do my words have the savor of the sweet truth of God or the earthy cloying scent of things that are less than heavenly? Do my life and my habits appear to follow in the footsteps of my God and King? Or do I find myself more often wandering in the broad and easy way that leads to death? Do I overlook sin, both in my life and in others? Or do I seek to turn others, myself, gently, always, and humbly, turn them away from iniquity? Do I lean on God's word as my source of inerrant truth? Or do I subordinate its claims to my own reason? Do I cultivate fear of God or view him as someone to be taken lightly? Someone who can be easily ignored. Someone who doesn't deserve my full attention. So those are just some good messages. I'm not, I don't say those from me to you as I've got these down and y'all need to catch up. I'm saying these are good diagnostic questions for any Christian at any point in their lives. One last point under this. This is a very timely message for us here in URC, I think, because we're currently searching for a man who can be trusted to guard the knowledge of God. So, just a quick application. I would encourage every one of you who calls themselves a member of URC to go home tonight and just pray through this passage and ask that as we search for a new senior pastor, that we would find a man who emulates the spirit of Levi and not the spirit of these other unfaithful priests. Finally, this is the good part, guys, so get ready. Finally, Jesus is the best priest who mediates the relationship between us and God and teaches us truth about God. Levi was a good priest. Well, Levi, the the Levites were good priests in many ways. Only Jesus is the high priest who leads us infallibly to God. Only Jesus can do that. Confex talked about it very well this morning. You should do, I'll go listen to his sermon whenever it gets online. But I just want to make a few points from our text here. Jesus turns us from our iniquity. His ministry was full of sermons in which he persuasively and powerfully laid out the path of righteousness. Jesus walks and walked in peace and uprightness. There was never a more sinless law-abiding, holy man than Jesus of Nazareth. And that is understating it greatly. I couldn't help but be reminded when I looked in this passage at verse 6 of a different passage in the New Testament. Here in verse 6, it says, no wrong was found on his lips. In 1 Peter 2, verse 22, it says of Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus lived a perfect priestly life. He didn't merely exhort us to righteousness. He left us an example 
so that we might follow in his footsteps. Jesus teaches us true things about God. Not only do Jesus' words reveal God, his very self depicts the eternal, almighty Jehovah. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Jesus is our priest who teaches us in the best, most perfect way possible what God is like. He is not only the messenger of the Lord of hosts. He is the message itself. This is what God is like. When we look at Jesus, we say, this is what God is like. This is what God does and says. This is how he loves. This is how he teaches. This is how he exhorts. This is how he convicts and pleads and prays. This is how God heals and works miracles. There's so many more, so many more. I could talk about Jesus all night, honestly. But this last one is very important. Jesus is our amazingly glorious high priest because he does something that the good priests, even the good priests in Malachi 2, that they don't do this, what Jesus does. Christ, the spotless, unblemished lamb of God, comes down from heaven. He executes his office, his priestly office to perfection. He does everything right. And at the end of his life, after he had spent 30-some years being a totally holy and blameless priest, he dies on the cross in the place of the bad priests. These evil men who so fully and rightly deserved the curse that God promised here in Malachi 2, these wicked pretenders claimed to serve the Lord and served only themselves. These charlatans whose punishment was mandated under the covenant of Levi, the curse was coming for them. For such sinners as these, Jesus Christ came to die. And our merciful, compassionate high priest calls out from the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This isn't an excuse As if to say, be lenient, Lord, they don't know any better. They do know better. We know better. God's word is clear. He's told us what he requires of us. But the Son of Man, the Lamb of God, the chosen Messiah from heaven hangs on a cross of wood and says, forgive them. Accept me as a sacrifice instead. Take my blood for theirs. I stand in the gap for them. I drink the cup of wrath for them. I will be beaten and crushed and drained of life for them because I am the perfect high priest. And my desire is to do whatever it takes to bring them to God. That's what a priest does. Priest is the mediator between God and man. That's what Jesus does for us. Sinners who don't deserve that. He has not only done everything that a human priest was required to do, Jesus has done everything necessary to reconcile us to God and bring us home to him. Let's pray. Father, what what a salvation you have sent to us. 
Jesus, what a, what a work of redemption you've wrought on our behalf. What a high priest you are to us. Spirit, thank you for mediating this truth to our hearts. Thank you for opening our eyes to the beauty of the gospel. We pray that we would see Jesus as our perfect high priest and that all honor and glory and praise would be to him forever and ever. Amen.